Hi everyone, this is Lale Welsh, CEO of the Neuromuscular Disease Foundation, and today we're talking with Ralph Lauren about the gene therapy and all the regulatory machinations that lead to a successful trial. And by successful trial, we mean both safe and efficacious. Ralph Lauren, the original by the way, and not the celebrity, is an accomplished attorney with Locke Lord Law Firm out of Boston and currently serves as NDF's attorney and current board chair along with his co-chair, Trisha Mullins, from whom we will hear in another podcast. Ralph is an expert on legal and regulatory matters related to the FDA and biotech industry. For those of you who have been following our journey into the complicated ins and outs of gene therapy for GNE myopathy, we hope you'll find this podcast informative. Hello, Ralph, and welcome to the NDF podcast series. Since this is a brand new industry with limited history, let's talk a little bit about the process of gene therapy first in general terms. For instance, can you tell us about the various forms of gene therapy available as possibilities today? Well, there are really three general types of gene therapy, two of which are on the market and one of which is still in testing. The, the first type and the first ones that were out there was something called CAR-T, which is used only in cancer right now. And they basically take someone's cells out, modify it, and put the cells back in. That That's had limited, and they've only done it for things like tumors. The second type is gene, called gene replacement therapy. And that, what they do is they take, where, take a gene and put it into the body using a carrier, and I'll talk about carriers in a minute, but that they put this in to replace a gene that is defective. It doesn't take out the defective gene, it just puts a new gene in there. The third type is called CRISPR, and a lot of people have heard a lot about CRISPR now. CRISPR actually modifies the gene in the body. That is a little further um, away from being uh, approved. There's been nothing approved with CRISPR. In fact, nothing has gone uh, that far. There have been a couple of patients that have been treated with it, but there have been some problems with that, as there are problems with each of them. Right. And and now, uh, of the three different types that you just described, obviously, NDF has been pursuing the second type. Um, can we talk about, uh, we'll talk about CRISPR a little bit because it's very, very exciting. Um, but can we talk a little bit about the uh, gene replacement therapy and what the various options are and the ways in which we can get the virus into the body? Sure. I mean, what's done is you actually make what's called a transgene. It basically has the gene you want to put in there, in the case of GNE myopathy, the GNE gene without any mutations. And you put in things to make it work in the body. Then you put all of that in a carrier. Carriers that have been used most are called EAVs, which are um, adenoviruses. They also ha have been using or trying lentivirus, which is another type of virus and it actually has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. They've also used virus, and there are now a number of synthetic uh, carriers that are being tested. So far, the only products that have been approved in the United States use the um, AAV system, and there are actually only two replacement therapies that have been, that have, um, 
been approved in the United States, one for an eye uh, condition and one for SMA, which is a muscular condition um, found in children primarily. Correct. And they're using the AAV for that? They're both using AAVs as carriers. So those are the only ones that have actually been approved and are currently being used. And of course, that's what NDF is also pursuing too. Can you talk a little bit about what the vector, the virus actually is? For a lot of people may not understand that the virus is actually a vector in which the gene is placed and then sent through the body, correct? Yeah, it, it's actually, it is a, it is basically, think of it as a carrier. Think of it as a, a vessel. you have an internal um, payload and you're putting this something around that payload to make it get into the cells. And that's what the AAV is doing. It's carrying it, getting it into the cells, and then it releases that payload. That payload here is the replacement gene. And that gene then uses the mechanisms of the cell, the cellular mechanisms of uh, reproduction and uh, protein construction to actually make the protein from the gene. I mean, we have to think about genes as what they're sort of like is instruction manual. And they use the body's system to read that instruction manual and make what they want to make in the body. Right. And in the case of, of GNE myopathy, it's going to be released in, in what area? Is it, is it how far into the body and into the muscle does it actually go? Do we know that yet? We, we don't know. We don't even know whether it's going to be done systemically, which is, means sent all around the body or whether it's going to be delivered locally to the particular muscles. It is unlikely that it's going to end up being locally just because so many different muscle groups are affected by this. Systemically, though, has a series of problems with it. It is difficult yeah, uh, to do that for various people. Could you list the the issues that maybe potential issues with delivering the vector into the body using an AAV systemically? Problem is to do to deliver systemically, and any AAV anyway. You first have to see whether the person is allergic to it or not. And a lot of people cannot have an AAV. There are certain AAVs they can't do they've already got an immune response to it. Second, the, to get it systemically at the right locale, you need a large dosage. And we're talking um, trillions of particles. And you know, when you have that, the more dose you put into someone, the more there are potential problems of the body rejecting it, some, something bad going in the body. And then that can be a problem. It has been a problem in certain uh, tests that have been run right now. Right. Currently, the, the, this might be a good place to pivot to the conversation about dentists. There was recent news uh, of, of some very sad news with regards to a patient being given a little too high a doses, dose of uh, AAV8 uh, through dentists. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. A dentist is trying to, was trying to treat one of the muscular diseases, and they were giving systemically very high doses, and they tested it with, as you must as you go through, different doses of a drug. And they gave, to the lower dose, people, some people got a little ill, but when they gave the highest dose, certain patients 
um, primarily those who were overweight, had other health problems. Um, a couple of patients died. And that is a real problem at that high dose. So the whole program there is put on hold right now to find out why did this actually happen? It happened because there's a problem with the AAV or the um, transgenate, or is there a problem with just that kind of level of dosage being too high for the body to use? And all of these dosages are calculated using so many particles per kilogram of body weight. So those who are heavier obviously get a higher dosage. So, so people who are, in fact, bigger than um, are going to be, if it is, in fact, the toxicity associated with the number of factors that are, that are put into the body, someone who's bigger is obviously going to be at more risk, at a higher risk than a small baby. And I believe with the SMA trials, these were um, tested on small children, which is easier to get the vector uh, all the way into the body. Am I correct? Well, it, it's a matter you're going to... If, if someone is got, you're going to have a larger amount for a person who is heavier. The SMA trials were at the same rough level, or actually smaller levels per kilogram. But besides that, these are very. They were done for um, people. The one that's approved is for children under two, and there's very strict limits. These these kids are very small, so they're putting in nowhere near the amount. And the body seems to process it better that way. Nobody knows 100% sure what happened yet. They're investigating. That's why Odentis's clinical trial was put on hold. But it, the belief, since it took place at the high dose level, is it is toxicity from that very high dose. Right. And um, so what does that mean then for adult GNE myopathy patients that are waiting uh, for this to become a reality? Uh, how much more work do we need to do before we are convinced that the level of, of the number of doses going in is not going to cause toxicity and problems uh, for our patient group? Well, I mean, one of the things we're working on right now is animal models, which can give you a feel because one of the things you do going in is is called the toxicity study. Toxicity study is you use the animals and put a, put doses, different doses in there to see how it works, you know, and try to get it to see so it's both effective but non-toxic. Then when you get to patients, you normally go with a relatively, uh, what's called dose escalation study. You hope to do, you use a lower dose, and then some people will get a higher dose. And hopefully from the work that's been done, all the previous work will let you get a dose that is, even at the high levels, not toxic, because you're trying to get the most efficacious but non-toxic dose. And that's something you do not want to mess around with and get wrong. Right. And so when we talk uh, about the delays, the, you know, I get a call a week saying, you know, what's going on with gene therapy? Why is it taking so long? Um, this is exactly why uh, this kind of vindicates our process in the sense that, you know, it's very important that because particularly it's a one time shot, uh, you can only do this once in a lifetime, at least right now because of the antibodies that we make sure that we not only make it so that it's safe, but that it's also going to work and it's a fine line. Can we elaborate a little bit on that? Well, it, it is that what happens is you can only do it once. 
for most people. You know, there there have been some tests trying to see if you do more, but really, when you get the AAB the first time, you will develop antibodies and not be able to do it a second time. So what you want is you really need to balance. Obviously, if you're trying to get as many muscle cells as you can, you'd like to have as high dosage as possible, so you've got the best chance of getting as much of the protein produced. On the other hand, you have that problem about toxicity as you get higher and higher. So it's, it is a balancing act until you've got some basis to choose something. You, you need to do some testing and just pulling a number out because other people have done it, um, you know, used something like that. The fact of doing it for an adult is very different than doing it for a child. And exactly. the dosage may work well for a, for a child. They may not for an adult. And there are all sorts of potential reasons like that, not just body weight, but also how fast does a child clear something, how fast are the muscle cells um, uh, getting developed, et cetera. So there are reasons, and we really want to have the best dosage possible so you get the most efficacious, but you also want someone to be safe. So that's an important message uh, takeaway from, from this conversation is that it's a very, very delicate dance. Can we talk a little bit about the SMA? Um, how did they manage that process and what can we learn from that and take it forward? As well, what can we learn from the mistakes that were made at Audentis um, in being one of the first to market? What can we take away from all of that? Well, the SMA is actually interesting. They actually tested this. Um, they, they did. They actually had a good animal model for SMA, and they did a lot of animal testing. And still, this took many years to get this developed um, and to get this into market. They were, you know, lucky in some ways that by doing this in young children, if it did work, it was going to be particularly advantageous. And the SMA type they were doing that, that has worked and there's one that's on the market right now is they actually tested it on children who were six months or less. Um, it is only approved for those two years old or less right now, though there are other SMA types that are later. Nothing else is approved. And that is something that it worked, you know, and for them, these children, you're getting some wonderful results. On the other hand, our dentists who had some very good results with some of the other diseases, though never have not having a drug approved, this particular test they were doing, they had this, obviously it's a problem about, you know, not just getting sick, but people actually dying. And that is not the first time this has happened with a gene therapy. In fact, many, about 15 years ago, gene therapy was put on hold nationwide because someone died from a dosage. And then just last year, Solid has put up and had two clinical holds so far. One because someone got very sick and the other because someone died. So th this has been an ongoing problem. It is a wonderful concept if it works. And it is the best we've got, you know, much better th treatment than anything else. But you have to be right and you have to get it and make sure you've done all the testing you can to get this, to get the optimum dosage. And in
what NDF has been doing to learn from people who've gone there ahead of us, uh, not just with SMA and with Spark Therapeutics, the ocular thing that they've been successful with. It sounds like the most success has happened in the eye, which is a very small area, and small babies under two years old, which is also a small area compared to a large adult. Um, what can we say that we've learned from this and how can we belabor the importance of taking our time to learn what we can about the mechanisms of the disease before we start dosing human beings um, in what might be a reckless uh, move? Yeah, obviously we need to have the best information we can. So what we've been doing is learning as much about the disease and you know how, to, how it works as we can, including whether there are other you know, genes involved that trigger things. Um, we have a disease in GNE that is an interesting disease because it's a late onset um, disease, which is harder to work with in a lot of ways. So we're being cautious about how to do it and trying to get all the information we can. At the same time, because we don't have a perfect animal model and the fact it takes so long in these tests to show something, We've been working on things like biomarkers, which can show that it's being uh, effective well before you actually will see a change, you know, to see that someone's disease is slowed or anything like that. So we have to do this. We need to get all of the pieces in place before we ever go to have a injection to a person. Um, and just picking the dose out of midair is not something you can do. You really have to get some feel for it. And that's where we were working with animal tests and such, trying to get the best testing we can to see what we can use, as well as what's the best um, delivery vehicle. Is it an AAV? And if so, is it AAV 2, 5, 8, 9, RH74? There's a whole number of them now, where there used to be only one or two. Second, is an AAV the best delivery vehicle? And the people are working with lentiviruses and things like that say possibly not. Um, and the synthetics ones, it may be better because they may not have the immunogenicity problem that you get with the AAVs. So there are Can all sorts explain? of different things going on right now. Can you explain immunogenicity a little bit more for people who may not sure, understand it? Sure. Immunogenicity is basically if you think about it, um, when you inject something or something foreign comes into the body, the body's immune system, they develop and they fight this. They think it's something unnatural, so they, they um, fight it, and that's where the immune system comes up. The AAVs have been known to trigger immune responses in people, and that's called the immunogenicity. And because of that, for people who have already somehow been uh, somehow had AAVs in their system or something similar enough that they already has caused immune response, those people cannot have an AAV therapy. So there are a large number of people who cannot get a gene therapy with AAV, which is why people, uh, one of the reasons people are working on other delivery systems as well. In addition, if you're trying to put different things in the payload, um, other than GNE, like the GNE gene, which is easy to put in, but if you want to put something else in there too, 
you may not be able to do it because of size limitations of AAV. So people are looking at lentiviruses because they're a much larger payload, and some of the um, synthetics are even larger than that. Right. And can you talk a little bit about the, the, the common belief or the misconception that NDF was actually closer to gene therapy several years ago uh, with a Nationwide Children's Hospital, but one of the reasons and the rationale behind why it wasn't quite ready. Can you address that, please? Well, it, it, there was no animal testing at the time. There was no real, no selection of a dose. It was just out of thin air. And the FDA looked at this and said, you're not ready. And there was no testing done really with the um, uh, AAV that was being picked. It was basically, they were going, they were proposing to take what was done, an AAV system that was done for a different disease and take out the gene there and drop in the GNE gene with no testing to know that it really would work. And People think it was, you know, some people have thought it was going to be very simple. All we've, the most we've learned over time is this is anything but simple. It is a difficult situation. It's a difficult procedure to do this. And all sorts of things can go wrong in manufacturing when there was no manufacturing way at that stage. And it was only going to be done potentially in Nationwide Children's for the initial testing and then someone else would have to take over the project, and it's not clear they would want to do it the same way. Right, so there were really two issues. With regards to the first issue, which is the amount of AAV and the toxicity, which now we've learned can actually kill an adult or a larger adult, um, can you can you belabor that a little bit more for our audience? Could it, it Would it be fair to say that had we just forged ahead without having a certain um, scientific understanding of the number of AAVs that we needed to use, that it could have, we could have been one of the unfortunate groups that may have resulted in uh, making someone sick or worse, dying. Right. I mean, it's basically a matter that no, there had not been a um, toxicity study at all, and it wasn't clear they were actually going to get to what they were going to use as a starting point for a toxicity study, because there had been no real testing to show any efficacious um, aspects in an animal. So it's a matter that the you can't just pick a number out of the air because it's something that's been used for that someone's tried for a different disease. That doesn't work. None of the genes are always the same. And when they go into the muscle or wherever they're going in the body, they're going to act differently. And how many copies do you need of things is always a you know a question. So you can't just do that. You really need to have a scientific basis for what you pick. You can do some testing and get that scientific basis, but the testing would not be done. I see. And then for the second issue that you, you sort of conflated with that answer before was that then there's the issue of if you even do these studies using a specific vector uh, or virus, then you may have to end up working with yet a different organization, say a biopharmer or someone with the deep pockets and knowledge <clears throat> being able to commercialize and take this all the way to market. Um, could you explain why then having committed to a specific AAV may not be, or a specific vector may not be a smart move? Well, sure. I mean, it, it depends. If you're, when, when you do 
a phase one study, which is basically you've got the uh, government allowing, the FDA allowing you to test this in people. And it's normally with a disease like this, a very small number of people. I think six were proposed or something like that. Then that was as far as that organization, Nationwide Children's, could go. They didn't have the manufacturing capability to do it for any further. They didn't have, they were going to have to use, it was going to have to go to some company to get to the next stage. And the trouble is that each company has its own know-how, preferred AAVs, et cetera. And unless you get somebody who's willing to use exactly what was done and license it and believe that was the right way of doing it, that may not be easy to find someone. So it's there's an advantage to try to get this lined up early with a biotech so you don't have to take the missteps. And effectively, if you make changes, you may have to redo everything you've done before. Right, so it's a waste of time and uh, an inordinate amount of money, as you know. Um, so with regards to where NDF is currently with, re with regards to its efforts towards gene therapy, we've obviously come a long way since those early days. Um, and can you give an, a little overview of all of the steps that were necessary in order for us to get to a place where we can comfortably move forward with uh, uh, clinical trials? Well, I mean, we, we need first to have the proper AAV uh, or, or proper carrier and transgene picked. And that's a question. And the only way to tell how well that works is, is to put it in animals. I can tell you from past experience, having used other, you know, for other uh, gene therapy programs, you can change the different promoters. You can change what AAV you're using. You can change some of the other aspects, and some of them that you think will work in, in terms of expressing may not express well, or it may not express well in that cell type. Then you also then have issues of you have to check the toxicity. You need an animal test for that. To do it, and it helps to have it. You're going to have to test it in animals, and it helps to be able to show that it actually um, treats the condition, not just um, producing the protein, but you also need that actually is effective in treating the condition. And that's something that's very difficult. Um, once you do that and get the toxicity testing, you then need a way to manufacture it. And manufacturing is exorbitantly expensive and has actually become something somewhere difficult. And you can run into problems such as. Um, you could have it done at a uh, academic lab where they do the initial manufacturing, but they actually have their own know-how, their own tricks of the way of doing it. And those may not scale up. You may not be able to do it if you're trying to do a larger batch. And those may not work, so you may have to do it differently and then go uh, back to this. So the idea we've tried to talk about and try to do it NDF now is to see if we can help line up a biotech who is interested in the program so we can get their expertise from the start and actually don't make these mistakes. We're trying to see if we can do it. So once it actually is uh, along this way, we are in the best position to do it and use their expertise as guidance to get to where we want to go. 
Right. I mean, biotechs are, are, have spent billions of dollars investing in this new technology. Um, and there are a few candidates uh, with whom NDF has been speaking, as you know. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what NDF has done uh, from a perspective of having done things right and where it is in terms of where it needs to go and what, what people can do to help NDF uh, achieve its goals? Working on things like the animal model, we're getting much closer to, we've gained some positive results there. That is necessary to show that what we're using is efficacious and also that we're going to be able to use it for toxicity studies. We are working on biomarkers, and biomarkers are necessary so that we can see whether this is working in a reasonable time frame because this is such a slow onset disease that we need to know that it's working rather than using a five or six year clinical trial um, we you know to get some results to see if we can go to the next step uh, we are working on seeing if there's anything that's modifying it why does this suddenly hit people at different ages and why is it different severity so we've looked at things like using the whole genomic sequencing to see if there are any modifiers or anything that triggers this we have been able to make cell banks, which actually can be used by researchers around the world to help um, promote all these aspects of this. So there's been a lot of science done, and a lot of science that's still ongoing right now, trying to make this the best shot at getting this gene therapy to work. That's wonderful. And what could, in hindsight, NDF have done differently to move the needle faster or better, if anything? It's not clear that anything necessarily could have been done. I mean, it's um, it probably what's happened now is the one thing that would have helped most, which we've been able over time to be able to get the scientists to work together as a group much better than they ever did before. It's always hard to get scientists to work together. And as they're working, as they're now having an interplay or more and more interplay, that's the only thing that could have moved it faster, but that took time and trust in NDF. And that's something that we've now established as the primary um, foundation for GNE myopathy. And that worldwide trust between the scientists now is starting to pay off dividends. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Ralph.